Grammar Girl here. January 24th is National Compliment Day, so I have a quick and dirty tip to help you figure out which way to spell compliment. I have a fascinating excerpt from a book called Saving Our Prepositions and a tidbit about how eight fonts got their names. You look fabulous. What an attractive audience you are today. Those were compliments, but there are two words pronounced that way, and it can be difficult to remember the two spellings. They're homophones. One is spelled with an I, and the other is spelled with an E. And even though they sound the same, they mean different things. A compliment with an I is a kind or flattering remark. If a friend says he likes your new shoes, he's giving you a compliment. He's complimenting you. Compliment with an E is a full crew or a set. And when something compliments something else, it means they go well together. You may talk about a picture frame that compliments a photo or the crew compliment needed to operate a ship. To remember the difference between the spellings of these words, be a nice person and tell yourself, I like to give compliments. Put the emphasis on the I when you say or think it. I like to give compliments. And that I can remind you that the type of flattering compliment is spelled with an I. And that was your quick and dirty tip. Next, I have an excerpt from the book Saving Our Prepositions by David Thatcher. All words can be problematic, but prepositions are particularly so because their use and meaning often seem, and indeed often are, so arbitrary and peculiar. The word idiom derives from the Greek for peculiar. We might say that the idiomatic preposition tends toward the figurative. The non-idiomatic preposition tends toward the literal. As in this well-known jingle, the bird is on the wing, but that's absurd. The wing is on the bird. We can sense the difference between the dog jumped at the man's throat and I jumped at the chance, or between she looked into the mirror and she looked into the problem. Familiar prepositions like after, by, for, of, and on can vary toward the figurative when found in phrases the meaning of which cannot be determined by their constituent parts alone. Examples are not that far to seek. After all, meaning all things considered. By far, meaning to a great extent. For good, meaning permanently. Of course, meaning certainly. And on edge, meaning nervous. One explanation for misused prepositions may lie in a hybrid phenomenon we might call crossover, or as Paul Bryans calls it, cross-pollination. This is essentially a problem of transposition, rather like the verbal confusion that produces spoonerisms, malapropisms, and portmanteau words like slithy, slithe plus slimy, in Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky. When he asked, what do you mean by that insinuendo? Archie Bunker had conflated innuendo and insinuation and created high verbal comedy. My niece, as a young slip of a girl, did the same thing once when she asked me to fetch her an ice cream from the reshiverator. The semi-illiterate irregardless was probably spawned by irrespective. 
It's been pointed out that you can hone down the edge of a knife or a point in any argument, and you can home in on a radar beam, but you definitely can't hone in on anything. At my local tennis court, there's a notice. In consideration of other players, do not enter the court until your time to play. I think this should be out of consideration for other players, since in consideration of means in view of or on account of common legal jargon. In consideration to others is also wrong. The American usage oblivious to, rather than oblivious of in Britspeak, is probably modeled on indifferent to, though the distinction between oblivious of and indifferent to is surely worth retaining. One of the most common misuses these days is to say bored of rather than bored with. Could it be that bored of is subconsciously modeled on a phrase like tired of, similar in sound and meaning? Or that the strange-sounding in jeopardy of is based on the more familiar in danger of? Or that comment about instead of comment on is patterned on talk about? Or center around instead of center on stems from revolve around? As W.T. Webb wrote as far back as 1925, a not infrequent source of error is the fact that sometimes words related to each other in form and meaning are followed by different prepositions. The examples he gives are consequent upon, but subsequent to, equal to, but equally with, contrast a noun to, but contrast a verb with, and full of but filled with. The temptation to add a redundant on to the verb infringe can possibly be attributed to the crossover from impinge on and or encroach on. In a sign which reads, you are prohibited to smoke in the playground, the preposition to, it should of course be prohibited from smoking, has been lifted from the expression it is forbidden to do something as conversely the incorrect forbidden from has been lifted from the correct prohibited from. Crossover is also at work in the phrase innate to, as in conscience is said to be innate to human beings. Here, innate to should be innate in, the to possibly borrowed from the cognate intrinsic to. Noting that the preposition for is, quote, the common preposition most rarely misused, unquote, In the Penguin Guide to Plain English, Harry Blamers offers an instance of crossover or what he terms constructional transfer. Quote, Local Tory and labor leaders share a fierce pride for their city. Unquote. He comments, quote, Because we speak of affection, fondness, or love for a city, the writer wrongly transfers this usage to the word pride. It should be pride in their city not pride for their city, unquote. He gives further example, citing, quote, a father who has an obsession for sport, unquote. You can say a person has a love for sport, but the preposition which governs obsession is not for but with. Again, in, quote, we were proud and thrilled for Canada's gold medal, the word by should replace for, 
and incidentally, of should follow proud. It should read, we were proud of and thrilled by Canada's gold medal. Consider, my parents never paid any interest to me. There appears to be a double mix-up here, the expressed grievance blending pay attention to and show interest in. You don't take umbrage with someone's racist remarks. You take umbrage at them. Here, the crossover appears to be with take issue with an alien viewpoint. People add a redundant on to the verb continue because they transpose it from a verb of similar meaning, like carry on. They say and write yearn after instead of yearn for because at the back of their minds, they hear the after in hanker after. In respect of gets entangled with with respect to to produce the ungrammatical in respect of. The conflation of 10 years hence and in 10 years time produces the ungainly hybrid in 10 years hence. A TV newscaster's mind juggles with two competing phrases, give a wide berth to and keep away from, and his tongue responds by saying the highly unidiomatic keep a wide berth from. A football commentator will say that the weather is likely to play a factor rather than be a factor or play a role and point out that home advantage will play into a team's favor, perhaps an echo of play into someone's hands rather than be in a team's favor. And a defender is described as cutting the ball down as if it were a tree instead of cutting the ball off. To veer away from prepositions for a moment, it's worth noting new words get invented by this act of transposition. Roisterous is a hybrid of roistering and boisterous. And heart-wrenching is a mismatch of heart-rending and gut-wrenching. Likewise, disheartened is the result of disheartened and disenchanted, overlapping or being unwittingly superimposed. And I say unwittingly because This kind of error seems to be made without the speaker being aware of what's going on. Getting wires crossed is most likely to occur when someone is under stress, speaking in public, for example, or being interviewed on television. Sentences get themselves started and lose a sense of where they're going. There's a momentary loss of direction and control. All speakers have a right to change their minds about what to say and how to say it. But when they're caught in two minds in the middle of a sentence, they are heading for deep trouble. The politician who wanted to say that his opponent had strong leanings toward communism decided that connections might be better than leanings, so out popped strong connections toward communism. The commentator at a tennis match wanted to say that a young player's parents were proudly looking on but got sidetracked into saying proudly watching on. Defending a co-worker who had just been fired, a woman said she was a loyal employee to the company, but it's loyal to and employee of. A way round this problem might be to rearrange the word order. She was an employee loyal to the company. Due allowances can and should be made when mistakes of this kind occur particularly in people's unrehearsed speech. Mishearings also account for a few mistakes. By and large, 
gets spoken and written as by in large, just as would have gets spoken and written as would of, out of as outa, and the parliamentary sign of approval here here h e a r gets transcribed as the dodgy here here h e r e. As E. B. White has acknowledged, quote, English usage is sometimes more than mere taste, judgment, and education. Sometimes it's just sheer luck, like getting across the street, unquote. And that was an excerpt from David Thatcher's book, Saving Our Prepositions. The chapter continues with an interesting list of prepositions and their use and common misuse. Finally, I have your tidbit how eight fonts got their names. First, though, we have to talk about the difference between a typeface and a font, because what we're really talking about here is the names of typefaces. Think of it this way. The font is a small part of a typeface. If we're talking about Times New Roman, Times New Roman 12-point bold italic is the font, and the typeface is the collection of all the fonts that make up the entire Times New Roman set. Today, however, many people do think of letter styles as fonts because that's the word you find on all your software menus. So let's start with Times New Roman because we'll go through the names chronologically. Times New Roman is the oldest typeface on my list. It was created in 1931, and its name makes immediate sense when you realize it was designed for the British newspaper, The Times. Times New Roman was the default font in Microsoft Word when I was in school, and I hesitate to tell you this because people can get really judgy about fonts, but it's my favorite font. If you send me a document in any other font, I change it to 12-point Times New Roman before I read it. Next is Palatino, which was designed in 1948 by a famous typeface artist named Herman Zapp. Palatino takes its inspiration from Renaissance calligraphy and is named after Giovanni Battista Palatino, an Italian calligrapher who lived in the 16th century. According to the font.com site, Zapf updated the Palatino typeface in 1999, adding Latin, Greek, and Cyrillic characters, and my favorite punctuation mark, the interrobang. Howard Bud Kettler thought of Courier as Messenger when he was designing it for IBM in 1955. But he described the change of heart that led him to the name Courier this way, quote, A letter can be just an ordinary messenger, or it can be the Courier, which radiates dignity, prestige, and stability, unquote. Twelve-point Courier was the standard typewriter font, so I can't even imagine how many letters were couriered over the years. Helvetica was another typeface that went through an identity crisis. It was released in 1957 as Neue Haas Grotesque, but by 1960 it had been licensed by another company and given the name Helvetica, which comes from Helvetia, which is the Latin name for Switzerland, and which the company thought would play better in a global market. Computers and the advent of desktop publishing, of course, made typefaces more relevant to the average person because we could choose our fonts. Susan Kerr was an important typeface designer for Apple, and in the early 1980s, she designed many fonts for the Macintosh computer. 
according to an article Kara wrote for Folklore.com. Since her group was making so many fonts, they started naming them after train stops in suburban Philadelphia. But then Steve Jobs came by and decided it was fine for the designs to be named after cities, but they needed to be named after world-class cities, and thus Geneva, Chicago, New York, and other early Macintosh typefaces were named. As we get into the more modern typefaces, the names start to get even more interesting. Georgia, which was created in 1993, has the strangest origin story of all. The designer said it comes from a tabloid headline that read, Alien Heads Found in Georgia. The headline was one of their sample sentences as they were working with the design, and they decided to use Georgia for the name. Frankly, that story seemed too good to be true, but I found it in a few different credible places, and I came to believe that it is true. Finally, in 1994, one year after Microsoft released Georgia, the company released Tahoma and Verdana. All three of those typefaces were designed by Matthew Carter. Tahoma was named after Mount Rainier in the Seattle area, and the Native Americans originally called the mountain Tahoma. And Verdana's name is a combination of the word verdant, which describes something green or lush, such as a plant, and the name Anna. She was the daughter of Virginia Howlett, who was one of the first designers at Microsoft. According to an interview, she, quote, spearheaded a project to hire Matthew Carter to design a true type font designed for maximum readability at small sizes on the screen, unquote. In other words, the Verdana Project. And that was your tidbit, how eight typefaces got their names. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. I've written seven books about language that you can find at your favorite bookstore. And you can find hundreds of my language articles at quickanddirtytips.com. This episode was recorded at the fabulous studio at the Reynolds School at the University of Nevada, where I'm a journalism professor, and produced in partnership with Macmillan Holdings. That's all. Thanks for listening.